Let me invite you to grab a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts. You can open up an app, grab a Bible in the pew in front of you. I would recommend grabbing something, though. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through to 26. We're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Now this is the third sermon that we have in our series on the book of Acts. I love the title that we are going through. He lives... Aftershocks of an Empty Tomb. One of the things that we're going to be doing in this sermon series is we're going to be looking at the aftermath of Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrection changes absolutely everything that we know. Everything that we know about the world, everything that we know about God's work, and it has many implications for us in our lives today. So last week we heard from Pastor Deemer a sermon on Jesus' ascension. And Jesus' resurrection, as Jesus was with his disciples, he gathered his apostles, he gave them their final commission, go, you are going to be my witnesses. And then Jesus left them as he ascended into heaven. In our text this morning, Jesus sends the apostles to go and wait as they return back to Jerusalem and return to the upper room. And in this in-between period, we know what's coming, but they don't, right? They are waiting for this next step. And we see in this text, and what we're going to see in this sermon, is that this text looks to various aspects of preparation. The main idea that we have today is the idea of preparation. They are preparing for the next step. They know what's coming in part, but they are preparing for the ministry that God has given to them. So for us, if we are going to come to God's word, ask us an important question as well. How are we preparing? If they are preparing for ministry, how are we preparing for the things that God has called us to do? Hopefully you saw last week that the Christian life is a call to witness. It is a call to be productive. The call of salvation is a call to productivity for God. So let me ask you a question. What are you doing? Are you being productive for God? And if so, how are you preparing? Now, I think for many of us, we, if, if we are honest with ourselves, we don't often think about preparing for ministry because not many of us are in full-time vocational ministry. We have jobs, families, but the idea of preparing is very important. How are you going to, be, how are you going to best prepare for the things that God has called you to do? So what has God called you to do? You know you're supposed to be a witness, right? The thing about your own life, who's in your life? Who's in your friends group? What responsibilities has God given to you? How are you going to best serve the Lord? Because if if we are we we can't fall into the category of people who are just impulsive. There is a time between an idea coming into our mind and us doing something. (laughs) Preparation. So how are you preparing now for the works that God has called you to do? Christians cannot be haphazard. It requires forethought. We do not wander into productivity. If you spend all of your life just sitting around, I made you something for God. It's waiting for the opportunity. (laughs) Guess what? I find you probably won't be very productive. So our text is about preparation, but that that makes you to think about an important question for yourself. How are you preparing? What are you preparing for? These are things that we're going to look at in our text this morning. Let me give you a main idea. I'm a main idea sort of guy just to help you think through where we're going and a few hooks to hang some hats on. 
So in our, in our text today, we see the apostles preparing for the ministry that God has prepared for them. So to spin that around to you, because Jesus lives, we must prepare for the good works God has selected for us. And so this morning, I think that there are three couplets of ideas that we're going to talk about, about how we can best prepare for the things that God has called us to do. First idea this morning. First main point, we prepare for good works. How? We gather and pray. We gather and pray. Let's read um, verses 12 through 14 together of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So just to make some quick observations about this passage, if you look down at verse 14, that the disciples, they returned together for one important task. They were in prayer, verse 14. Now see what defines the prayer in verse 14. They were together with one accord. The word literally means one mind. You ever have a conflict with someone? (laughs) Go pray with them. It'll help. And they were devoting together for a long time. They were devoting themselves to the task of prayer. I think one of the interesting details we see here is that we see Jesus' spiritual family of his disciples gathering with Jesus' physical family, his family, his mother, his siblings, and all of them were coming together for this task of prayer. And so if we are going to think about preparing for the good works that we are to do, I don't think we can go very long without thinking about prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is making our requests known to God. It's beseeching who he is. It's declaring God's promises. It's aligning our will with God's will. If we're going to be productive for God, we're not going to be very productive if we aren't asking him to help us. Because it's all God's work, right? Prayer shows dependence upon God. Friend, if you are not one who is a praying person, I bet I can understand in part where you think your trust is, where the resources for life come from. Prayer shows dependence upon God. It shows that we need God for everything that is good. And so, friend, if you want to be productive for God, let me challenge you. You must gather and pray. We're going to get to a a component of this next Remember, I said gather, not just pray individually, but we'll get to that. Now, we could spend lots of time talking about prayer in the book of Acts, but I think there are two very important details from the book of Acts that contribute to our understanding of prayer. First, I want you to think about the risen Lord Jesus and prayer. Think about this. Jesus is only visible within the first few verses of the book, right? Jesus comes, here's your mission, and then he heads up into heaven. But Jesus is present in every single book. Prayer is heightened, further motivated by the fact that we pray to the risen Lord Jesus. He has conquered, he is working, and prayer connects us to the risen one. So as we work for God, we must pray 
but in particular, we are praying to the risen Christ that his kingdom would come. And I want to point to a few things within the book of Acts. Confidence in prayer comes from the knowledge that we are partnering with the resurrected king. Jesus is the field general. He is on his throne. And now we are his soldiers. We are his disciples. He is sending us wherever we go. And I love all throughout the book of Acts, Jesus just pierces into the scene. If you have to pay particular attention, Jesus as the Lord appears all throughout the book of Acts. You can see that even though he is not visible, he is present. In Acts 2, 47, at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we actually see the Lord show up. The Lord is adding 3,000 to their numbers. You know, the, the guards are trying to put apostles in prison. <laughs> Jesus sends angels to open the doors. In Acts seven fifty five, when Stephen is at the end of his sermon and about to be stoned, he sees Jesus. That gives him that final measure of confidence as he goes forward. In Acts sixteen fourteen, when Paul is preaching um, and Lydia is there, it says that the Lord opened her heart to believe. For the entire book of Acts is the story of the risen Christ's works as he constantly pierces through at various points within the church's movements. So friends, as we pray, we are praying and joining in the, in the work of the risen Christ. You know, we have many reasons to have confidence in prayer. God has made very clear that we can trust him. His promises are clear. He has proved himself to be faithful. So we, none of us are excused from praying. But friend, if you need further encouragement, Know that you are praying to the risen Christ and you're joining in his work. Second thing, let me point us to, in the book of Acts, you cannot go very far without seeing people praying. Church goes, they pray. Church goes, they pray. Now, when most of us think of prayer, we probably think about personal prayer, which of course is a discipline. In scripture, we see people constantly praying to the Lord. But the emphasis in the book of Acts is actually on corporate prayer when Christians gather together for the purpose of prayer. We already see this in verse 14. They are together with one accord and they are devoting themselves to prayer. But as you move through the book of Acts, you realize that every next step is launched by a gathering of prayer for the church. So let me just walk us through a few. In Acts 1, verses 12 through 14, in our verses, we see them gathering in prayer for the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15 real quick. We're not there yet, but think, look at verse 15. In those days. What were the in those days? In the days of prayer. So if, if this was a quick prayer meeting and we're done, it seems like that next step wouldn't have been added. They were gathered together for prayer. Prayer led to this next step. After Peter's sermon, which we'll hear about in a few weeks, the church, 3,000 people gathered together for prayer. In Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, after Peter and John heal a man, the Pharisees arrest them. They can't convict them, so they let them go. What does the church do? They pray for boldness. In the face of coming persecution, they go before the Lord and they ask, Father, may we be bold in the gospel. The Holy Spirit falls, and they keep going. Acts 6, there's a challenge between the Greek and Hebrew Christians over widows. Peter comes forward and says, guys, we can't stop this praying and word thing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So 
let's find deacons. They pray over the deacons and they keep going. In Acts chapter 8, verses 15, when the apostles visit Philip in Samaria, who's been doing gospel ministry, they pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. I love chapter 10, verses 11, chapter 10 and chapter 11, where um, Paul, the Peter, and Cornelius are having their own individual prayer lives, which leads them together. Cornelius is praying, Peter's praying. What's the fruit of that? They come together. The prayer of both Cornelius and Peter lead to unity. In Acts 12, James is killed. Peter is in prison. We actually see the church praying twice in verses 5 and verses 12. Acts Acts 13, the church prays for Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas have planted some churches, and then they're going back through, gathering together, appointing elders, and I bet they are praying. That's what the text said. So think about every stop is a stop of prayer as they're moving forward. You can also look at Acts 16, 13, Acts 16, 16, Acts 16, 25, uh, Acts 20, 36, Acts 21, 5, Acts 27, 29, all these different accounts of the church coming together for prayer. Friends, prayer in the book of Acts marks every step in the church's advancement. So corporate prayer fueled individual prayer. You think about what's happening. They come together. They're bringing all of their concerns and requests. They pray together. And then from that strength and seeking the Lord, they all go out into the various things that God has called them to do. Corporate prayer fueled individual ministry. So as we think about prayer and as we think about productivity, friend, if you want to be productive for the Lord, what does your prayer life look like? And let me push us further than just personal prayer. Friend, what role does corporate prayer play in your life? You know, it's very intentional what we try and do in our services. There's a reason why we bring requests and we are trying to make public things that are happening. We are coming together to seek the Lord that he may bless us in all of our endeavors. But friends, that is vital. So in your own life, when's the last time that you gathered with other Christians to pray? When was the last time that you reached out to another brother or sister to help you? Hey, I need help with this. Friend, if this is God's means for advancing the church, if this isn't present in your life, I don't think you're going to be very productive. Now, I know whenever you come to an application like this, it can become a two-edged sword. Because if you're honest, as I'm standing up here, I recognize deficiencies in myself and ways that I can grow. But I hope to make all of us a little uncomfortable if we see a lack of corporate prayer in our lives. So let me push it upon all of us. I know that as a member, you don't have as much responsibility in, in planning certain things, but let us, let's just ask the question. When was the last time that Harbin's gathered fully as a body for the task of prayer? That we all came together, we said we're going to devote time just to pray and ask that the Lord would bless all the various things that we're doing. What does it show about where our trust is? Let's do some programs. No. I like coffee and food. All that's great. Guys, if we want to be productive for the Lord, let me challenge all of us to come together for prayer. Deemer and I were talking the other day about maybe putting together a prayer service. Let me again avail, make sure that you know of a men's prayer. I know women gather together. But friends, let, let me put in all of us just a burden to be a people of prayer. 
not just individually, but together. If you want to be productive, let's gather and let's pray. Moving forward, my second point, if we want to prepare for good works, we must restore and rebuild. Restore and rebuild. That's point two. I think we see this in verses 15 through 22. We restore and rebuild. Let's read Acts 15 through 22 together. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the times that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, this text is important, but it probably doesn't strike us as one of the high points in Acts. I think that many of us think about Judas probably within the context of the Gospels, but the early apostles led by Peter had this acknowledgement that something had to be done about Judas. Now, if you know your Bible very well, Judas was the one who led to the betrayal of Jesus. He is the one who, as, as scriptures say, that Satan entered into his heart and he went out and he conspired with the chief priests and then he brought Jesus. He was the one who betrayed them. I think there are two important things if you want to understand what's going on here. Because Peter isn't just thinking on his own, trying to say, hey, if we have 12, 12 is better than 11, so let's just keep going. But the apostles had a self-recognition that they needed to replace the seat that Judas had forfeited. I think that's pretty clear in this text. Let me make that argument for you. It's important to see that the number of apostles is vital. That when Jesus in Luke 6 came together, he went up to a mountain and prayed all night. And from there, he, he, he chose a particular number of apostles, 12. That's not just an arbitrary number. That if you understand the argument of the book of Luke and even of the gospels in other places, that Jesus understood that he was forming a new covenant community that was going to, in part, replace Israel. I know there's some conversation there. But I think, at this point, Jesus is trying to make a new religious community led by 12 leaders. In the same way that there are 12 tribes, that now the number 12 is important because these 12 men are going to lead the new spiritual community. I think there's many places that you see it. I want to point to a few just within the book of Luke. If you go back to Luke 6, let me just read. In those days, he went up to the mountain and pray. All night, he continued in prayer to God. Just think about the idea of Jesus as a new Moses going up to the mountain 
praying. And from that mountain, in the same way that Moses gave his law, Jesus is forming the leaders of this new community. In Luke 22, um, 28 through 30, Jesus says to the remaining 11, he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we even see later in the book of Revelation that with the, t- the picture of the new Jerusalem, you have right after talking about the, t- the 12 tribes of Israel represented in that image, you have the 12 apostles. So you can make your argument there about how that all gets there, but there seems to be a correlation between the number of apostles and the number of tribes. Why? Because this is a new spiritual community. If that's the case, then the number of apostles is very important. And Peter makes the argument that what Judas did is that Judas forfeited his share in this blessed ministry. Here's how I think he makes his argument. To make this point, look at verse 17. This is where this argument starts. For he was numbered, being Judas, among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, I don't want to make too much about where words come from, but it's interesting to note that the same word for share is actually the same word for lot all the way down in verse 28. I think that keys you to the fact that there is an interesting theme that's going on here. And what, what Peter and what Luke are arguing is that Judas had this share, this, this portion in this ministry, and he actually exchanged it for this reward and then for the price of this wickedness, which is this field. And I think you see that's why he transitions in verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So Judas had this share in the ministry, but he would rather have this reward, this money. That's all that motivated him to do it. And then what's the reward of that? Judas traded this seat in the apostleship for this money and then for this land. Which is why Peter then goes to the book of Psalms. In verse 20, this may seem like odd references, like is this really what it's talking about? But Peter then grabs two psalms that talk about, the, that talk about desolation in a camp and then another taking his office. Because of Judas's acts of betrayal, because Judas thought that trading in money, that money was worth more than Jesus, let his camp be desolate. Let this place of wickedness be known. And at the end of verse 20, let another take his office. So Judas, instead of this seat that was given to him, changes it for a reward of wickedness for a land. Let the land be cursed. Let someone take his office. So now let's go and let's look at someone else. It's important to recognize that the apostles understood that Judas forfeited something, which is why when James dies a few chapters later, James, the brother John, first martyr, they don't replace him because he had the reward in his life. His death actually sealed his apostleship. So here, Judas had forfeited his ministry. But something else is going on here, which I think is really important. The apostles need to address a major PR problem. 
Let's think about this. Where was public opinion at on Jesus' disciples? Right now. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to blow everything out of the water, so no one's asking questions anymore. But in this moment, where is public opinion? It's pretty negative. Jesus? That guy? He's dead, right? What this text is trying to do is that it's trying to give explanation for why did Judas betray Jesus? This wasn't anticipated with the messianic promises, which then Peter then goes to verse 16 and says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. This had to happen. But they're also grappling with the reality that from early perspectives, this all is an absolute failure. Their leader is dead. Last time everyone saw the disciples, they were scattered. What the worst part was? It was an inside job. Right? It's just a mess. How do you explain this? How do you explain this for Luke's readers? You know, it's so well known. I hope that you saw that in verses 18 and 19. It became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Guys, what Judas did already got a nickname. They already renamed the signs after him. It's like you're sitting in lunch and then you walk, you, you have a thing of spaghetti fall on your pants. And then by the end of the day, people are like, hey, spaghetti pants, right? It's, there's this sense that everyone knows what happened. How are we actually going to go out and do this? How are we who betrayed Jesus going to go and be witnesses of him again? I think that that's an important question. Because then this isn't just about Judas, but it's also about the disciples. How are they grappling with, we're going to go serve the Lord again? All of us are running when he needed us? Think about Peter. It's easy for us in our mind to say, you know, Judas was the really bad guy, but Peter wasn't as bad, and God was gracious to him. But friends, we see in in Luke 22, you know the only difference between Peter and Judas? God's grace. Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But here he is, and here they are. They're about to go back out there. How do you have the emotional stamina just to go back out there after such a failure? Well, then I asked an interesting question about us, right? If we're going to be productive for the Lord, we have to wrestle with our own failures. The ways that we've all fallen on our faces. How can any of us serve him? Don't you know who he is? Don't you know what that person does? What kind of person that is? He tried to do something last time. The family ministry failed. Everything blew up. Friends, this becomes an important question for us because how do we respond to failure? We process failure usually in the time between the last event and the next event. If we're going to be productive for the Lord, we have to wrestle with the fact that, guys, we've failed. But this is an important question. And let me ask you one as well. What is required to be a faithful witness to Jesus? A perfect record, kind of an upright moral dude, gal, certain attributes. I want you to think a second about messaging and messengers. 
because any messenger either adds value to or takes away from its message. So for example, there's a reason I, am, I do not advertise women's shoes. It's not a good idea. I also don't do anything with facial hair. It just doesn't work. There's something about messengers that actually can add to or detract from the message. Right? I mean, the Greeks understood this with the idea of the, the ethos. Right? Something about the messenger has some weight to the validity of the message. So what's the message? Friends, it's a message of resurrection. So how do Christians best bear witness to this message of resurrection? Friends, I hope this is incredibly encouraging for you. Because we as fallen, finite people actually best bear witness to a gospel of resurrection by being failures. By being people who our own lives bear witness to the fact that we need to be saved. That we need to be resurrected. That we need to come back up after we've fallen. And so friends, whenever someone becomes a Christian, they are proclaiming a gospel that God changes people. God takes what is broken and gives life. And what better messenger for that is someone who has experienced that within themselves. So friends, if you are going to be a witness, if you're going to be productive for God, you're going to fail. (laughs) Just get used to it, right? But how often does failure paralyze us? Friends, you don't know everything. You're going to make mistakes. You can't control outcomes. And you're also a sinner, which means that all of your good of anything good that you do is completely corrupted with different desires and fights. But friends, it is in our failures that the wisdom of God is magnified, which then gives us the strength that once we fail, we get up. We try again. You know, in our world today, there's all these talks about reboots. There have been three Spider-Mans in my lifetime. I have this image. I need someone to fit it. Ah, it's not working. Guys, do you know that God never reboots his elect? God takes what he has chosen and then he gives life to it. So friend, just think about all that God has called you to do. Recognize that one of your biggest struggles is going to be how can I actually get up the next time? How can I witness when I didn't have the words? How can I love and serve when I know it was all about me? How can I serve? People know who I am. People know what I've done. But friends, it's in our weakness that we give glory to God, that he chooses broken, fallible people to bear witness to a resurrection, that, to a gospel that promises resurrection and new life. And so, one of the ways that he does that is he takes fallible, broken people and he calls them into service. And any time that someone points at you and says, you're a sinner, <laughs> you make mistakes, how can you do this? How can you serve God? You can say, you're right. <laughs> exactly right. But Jesus lives, and I know that the resurrected king is resurrecting me. So, As you try to be productive, when you fall, you get back up. God's grace sustains you. 
you restore, and we rebuild. God never reboots his elect. Some of you also need to hear that because if you don't grasp the fact that God's always taken broken people to minister to you, it's going to drive you bonkers. It's sometimes, easy, it's sometimes difficult for us to put our foot back in into the lives of people who have failed you or people who have spoken the wrong word or good intentions weren't enough. But friends, this is a community of people who have all know that we have nothing in ourselves that's good and yet God wants to use all of us to serve him. Point three. How do we continue to prepare for good works? We plan and trust We plan and trust. Let's read verses um, 23 through 26. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for him, and the lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, the text kind of gets interesting. You know, you have dice rolling in part. Hey, we have a big decision to make. Let's roll dice. Is that all what's going on here? Not exactly. I think that one of the main helpful components that this text adds for us is that as we prepare, we have to think through how do we make good God-honoring decisions. And we see two things that are represented here. That we see as they approach this issue, which is very important, there is some rational thinking. We have to think through this process. Okay, if we're going to have an apostle, he has to fit these categories. He had to be with Jesus here. He had to, you know, he had to be with us. He has to fit the certain line. They didn't like close their eyes and just spin around the room and point at anyone. Hey, you can do it. There was some processing that had to go on. But then when they ran into an issue, they turned to the Lord. One of the most important details in here, don't miss this, they recognized that by casting lots, that this was the Lord's decision. The Lord chose the first apostles. The Lord was going to choose this one. This wasn't a democratic election. Look in verse 24. And they prayed, you, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen. So you can look at this from a material perspective and say, they're just, what it is is you have a bag of rocks and you shake it until a name comes out. Are these rolling dice? You know, that's a big decision for just a bag and rocks. But they trusted in this process and in God's word and they brought it to him and said, Lord, you choose. And what happens is your will. Now, this helps us because as we, as we serve, as we move to serve the Lord, I think many of us fall into two categories. Either some of us are here are very detail-oriented across all the I's, all the T's, everything over here. And if, if there's any sense of doubt, I can't move forward. And other people over here are just flying by the seat of their pants through everything. But what this text helps us to see is that it gives us a trust in God's sovereignty in the details but then also helps us to recognize that Jesus does want us to think through things. Because if Jesus lives, then he validates the fact that his word is what we submit to. So then we come and we study it and we see what God's will for our lives and we push forward. But on the other hand, once we fall into traps and nuances, 
we make the best decision that we can and we trust. But both of these realities hinge on the fact that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, he has given us all that we need in his word. Because Jesus is alive, whatever happens in our lives, guys, is the will of the sovereign king. And he will be with us as we make the best decisions that we can. So as you prepare to serve Jesus, as you wrestle with praying and thinking through things, as you pick yourself back up again after your last failure, you know, pray, be wise, seek counsel. But then trust that Christ is on his throne. And whatever happens is according to his plan. Friends, we have a, such a privilege to serve Jesus. And we know in scripture that Jesus has good works prepared for all of us. So friend, let me challenge you. What good works has God put before you? How are you being a witness? What relationships are in your life? And think about how are you preparing? How are you getting yourself ready for the next thing? Who do you need to talk to today? Say, hey, I need prayer with this. Hey, I'm really, I really want to talk to my coworker, but last time I had no idea what to say. I really want to leave my family, but then I just, when the word came open, I didn't know the question. I just got nervous and I closed it. Guys, I'm really struggling with this sin. I need help. And then as you go forward, make good decisions, be wise. But friends, everything is in the Lord's hands. So what do you need to do? Friend, if you're an unbeliever here today, meaning that you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, let me just challenge you with this fact. Sooner or later, you'll realize that the same thing that applies, that we have all recognized, applies to you. Friend, we are all sinners. We've all made mistakes. And yet the gospel promises that the resurrected king can also resurrect you if you bow the knee, submit to Lord Jesus. Friends, the greatest news in the world today is that a man who died 2,000 years ago was God. He is still alive and he is on his throne. And that propels us and motivates us to prepare for good works. Let's pray. Father, what an honor and a privilege for us to serve you. Father, that you would use weak, broken vessels that constantly fail and fall on their faces that need grace, and yet you pick us back up and you send us back out to serve you. Father, many in here today probably wrestling with their own tasks you've given to them. And Father, would you encourage all of us in our hearts in the fact that you are with us and that you go before us. And may we be productive. May we serve you with our families and with our witness and with our lives. Father, thank you for your word and for how it encourages us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.